0: Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. I'm Cole Fakes, and I'm here with Terry Fakes, and we're going to talk about the book of Jonah today, and we didn't plan this correlation, but if there's a equivalent in the Old Testament to the book of Philemon in the New Testament in terms of message right. and in terms of even a stylistic component that we're going to get to exactly. towards the end, uh, this would be the book. And I think Jonah gets a little bit of a bad rap sometimes as being a vacation Bible school story. You know, you have Jonah and the whale. And then, Uh of course, you have the Awana kid that always comes in and says, probably not necessarily a whale. It's actually a big fish. (laughs) uh, Because the word used here indicates something that likely has gills. Yes. So it's a story that we're tempted to leave in our childhoods. Uh, A fantastic tale of a reluctant prophet who gets swallowed by a fish, big fish, and then goes to Nineveh. And in doing that, I think two things happen. I think one, it it's great obviously to tell kids stories about the Bible. I think that's one of the ways that we learn the Bible stories best. Absolutely. But when we never revisit these stories, we miss out on the really deep and layered meaning that these stories possess because Jonah is a really really applicable story. And it deals with some really important themes that you can't put into a children's story. And so it's that process of just revisiting and revisiting and getting deeper and deeper into these stories. The second thing I've noticed, though, is most people tell the book of Jonah like it ends at chapter three. Jonah, we'll, we'll talk through the story here in a minute. But basically, Jonah is called, he goes the other way, he gets swallowed by a fish, he goes to Nineveh, Nineveh repents. And if you end it there... It's a very different message than what the book really ends talking about, which, is, which comes in chapter four.
1: Well, and in fact, I think Jonah's uh, unique amongst the minor prophets in that the point of the book of Jonah is much less about the message he's been given and much more about Jonah and how he reacts, which helps to personalize this a little bit more. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we want to take
0: this story and read it as something more than just a, an interesting tale. What we want to what we want to do is look at what the text gives us, envision how the story maybe sets us up to react to it, and then talk about the impact that the Book of Jonah has on us. So to start, we we need to. Uh, talk about one thing that's unique about Jonah, and that is it's it's a great example, uh, one of many examples, but a great example of a story that when you open up a commentary or if you've been to a church uh, where uh, maybe the pastor doesn't have a, a really high view of Scripture, you're likely to hear that Jonah is a fable. You know, right. This is an Aesop's fable story. People don't get swallowed by whales or big fish for that matter. They are not in there for three days, but the symbolism of it is really important. And so the message of Jonah is found in the story, but not in any kind of historical reality. So to deal with that, I guess my question would be, why is it important or is it important that Jonah actually happened
1: as opposed to just being a great story in the Old Testament? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and I'll turn that around and ask you that same question in a second. But one that really stands out to me is the idea of the authority. Stories, uh, Aesop's fables have good little uh, stories to them and a good little lesson that you can take away. But I can concoct a story. That sounds, wow, that's an interesting story about this man, and this is what he did. And I can say, and the moral of the story is you should never steal. And I can concoct another story about a man or whatever. And the end of that story is, wow, you you should steal if it's for a good cause. In uh-huh. other words, we can create a story with any moral that we want. So I would say the important reason to, that this indeed, did happen, and we need to understand that it happened, is for the authority of the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stories have no more authority than their basis in reality. So Jonah is probably the book in the Bible, maybe other than Revelation, to which the greatest flights of fancy have been applied. Mm-hmm. You can understand this as a fable and draw almost any conclusion that you want. This is about race relations. This is about the Jungian archetype of human character. It can be about almost anything that you want. And at that point, it's really of no value to us. So I think it is. it did indeed happen. And I think that the fact that it happened is what gives it its authority. Now, I will make this one observation. How do we know that this happened? Well, we obviously take this on faith. But I will say this, that it's mentioned, uh, Jonah's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14 as living at a specific time in history, sometime during the reign of Jeroboam II, from 793 to 753 BC. So it is testable. I mean, if you're going to make up a fable, you just say, in a land far away, in a time long ago, but not with Jonah. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I would say that Jesus believed that Jonah was real. Now, you may say, sure, the people and kings and all the Israelites throughout the centuries and Jesus, they were just wrong. They had a fable, and they thought it was real. Fair enough, although I would point out there's absolutely no evidence for that point of view. I simply want to say that all the Jews, including Jesus himself, Believe this actually happened, so I think uh, the authority of the story rests on its actual reality. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I think you summed it up pretty well. I, I, the the main thing to me
0: is you you run the risk of of some really difficult and and uh, detrimental theological assertions if you deny Jonah its historical reliability. I think the first thing that that comes to my mind is one thing that you mentioned Jonah doesn't present itself to be a historical fable and you'll see people argue for this especially in some of the more technical commentaries the 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 language the Hebrew does read differently than a lot of other stories and we'll talk about that I think that's a distinct feature of the book of Jonah and uh you know they'll argue things like it's it's actually written more as a satire than it is like history but I would point out that If you're just reading along in the Old Testament, not only do you see Jonah mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14, and so you have the expectation in your mind that this is a real prophet of -hmm. of whom people knew what happened to him. Uh, Not only do you have Jesus mentioning him in the New Testament, but you have the introduction that comes with any kind of other prophetic literature. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, who's a prophet. Right. The other thing I would say is, we don't get to pick and choose what parts of the Bible we believe historically and don't believe historically, right. and so we have to let the text do what it wants to do. And in this case, I think the text wants to tell us about something that actually happened. And I always think to myself when you re- when you come across people who deny things like uh, that, people can be in the belly of whales for three days and survive, or you know, you get this same kind of thing with the flood and right. other Old Testament stories. But but one of the things you always have to say is, okay, but if you don't believe that, you're going to have a lot of trouble when you get to the resurrection in the New Testament. And right. a lot of times, if, if these people are Christians, but they deny things that happened in the Old Testament or things that have to do with creation or something like that, a lot of times they'll, they'll still hold to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead. Right. And my thought always is, if you believe that, why is it so hard to believe that a person got swallowed by a fish for three days and then coughed up and went the other direction? <laughs> right. that, this is a pretty minor miracle compared to raising someone from the dead. Exactly. And Jesus actually argues that way in the New Testament. He, when, when the Pharisees confront him over forgiveness of sins, he uses this same line of logic. Okay, so which would be more difficult? Uh, forgiveness of sin or, or I tell this guy to get up and, and walk with his mat? Right. Or, you know, that a man rise from the dead. And that's the same kind of argument we use with Jonah. Is But why? Why deny it? Because you're believing more deniable things in the New Testament right. than Jonah. So I don't see any reason to read it as a parable. I think it loses some things
1: theologically, and as you mentioned, historically, if you read it that way. Well, the Jews certainly took all the literature that was... A parable or an allegory, and they placed it in their secondary literature. So you'll see uh, stories in the Mishnah and the Talmud that uh, whose historicity is in doubt, but whose moral of the story, if you will, was very valuable. But they had the discernment to understand the difference between what was canonical, if you will, what uh, God sent to them, and stories that were useful. So there's a lot of uh, reason to believe that Jonah is actually true. And I'm with you. I think if you want to reject Jonah, I think you have to reject a lot of other things. And so yeah. if you're an atheist, I'm fine with that point of view. If you're a professing Christian, I don't really understand the logic behind Yeah. I mean, this is like a three
0: out of 10 oh, on the scale of yes. miraculous things exactly. that, that you could reject. So let's get into a little bit of the historical background. The, the prophet's And the historical books of the Old Testament are sometimes arranged in a way that's unhelpful in terms of figuring out how they all go together. Um, And there are some really great charts available for this. You know, the Chronological Bible, if you have one of those, is really helpful here. But it can be hard to locate the prophets because they're all grouped together at the end of the Old Testament with where they actually fit in the storyline of the Old Testament. So
1: what's going on at the time of the book of Jonah? A good question. So Jonah is prophesying, let's call it from 800 to 750 B.C. This is when he's, he's going to Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And as we'll see, the Assyrians repent. But the Assyrians would then go on to not hold to that repentance because in 722 A.D., just a little bit later in history, they will invade the northern kingdom Of Israel and they will deport ten of the tribes. They will uh, try to conquer Jerusalem in 701 BC and fail when King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah rely on God and God strikes down their army. They will go into the next century into the 600s and get weaker and weaker as a power and the Babylonians will get stronger and stronger and finally uh, during the time of Josiah, the king of Judah, in 612 BC, the Assyrians will be conquered by the Babylonians. So during this 200-year period, we're seeing the rise and the fall of Assyria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Nineveh being
0: the capital of Assyria is one of the most important cities in the world at this point. Right. Uh, and you, you you do this really well in your teaching, but it's important to remember that Israel is basically attacked and captured and serves as a vassal state and then rebels against the major empires of the world for almost all of its existence. I mean, you could trace it all the way back from the time they leave Egypt, when Egypt is a dominant power in the world, mm-hmm. all the way up to the time of Christ, where Rome is the dominant power in the world. Right. That that little right turn that you have to make to go from Europe and Asia down to Egypt across the land of Israel, is a very important stretch of land. And so whether it's under Babylonian control or Assyrian control, you always have an enemy in the backdrop. Right. So to put this in bigger context, David and Solomon are around the year 1000. Then you have a split kingdom battling back and forth for the course of 200 to 250 years. Uh And all of a sudden the wheels start to come off. And this is almost peering over the ledge, like you mentioned, as into the future of what Israel and Judah are going to look like. And that may be one of the reasons why it's so counterintuitive at the beginning of this book that Jonah, who is the son of Amittai, who we are inferring here is an Israelite prophet, is going to go to Nineveh. Not just a powerful city, but an enemy, an arch enemy city, a wicked city. So let's walk through the, the action in the book of Jonah. We open, and Jonah is called by God, as any, as any prophet that you see has this same introduction. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. Then you get a little bit of a scratch on the record, and instead of obeying God, Jonah decides that he's going to do the exact opposite. And you should know as you're reading this, you say, "Oh my gosh, there's a prophet who is not doing what God tells him to do. That's not the way it's supposed to be." The Ninevites are the ones that are not doing what God calls them to do. Right. Jonah, an Israelite, is supposed to be doing what God says to do. And so right. you have a reversal of roles throughout this whole story. That's a right. really nice interplay. So he goes down. He buys passage to Joppa. Uh, uh, he buys passage in Joppa to go to Tarshish. And one interesting thing is, I don't know if you have a theory on this, nobody really knows where Tarshish is. Right. It's just the edge of the known world. Right. just a long way away. Right. And he goes away from the presence of the Lord, and that phrase is going to be very important through the story. But then God decides, you know, I actually want Jonah to go to Nineveh. So through a series of catastrophic events, he... Sends a storm, and then the sailors decide we got to figure out what's happening here. Something is wrong. Even these pagan sailors can tell that something is wrong. The gods,
1: some god, is really mad.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and it's just funny through this whole story. What you get is Jonah, who's been to prophet school. He has he has a degree from Bible college, and he is not doing what he's supposed to. But the Ninevites, the pagan sailors, are calling out to God. They're converting (laughs) on the ship. You know, they're offering something to God. And Jonah several times proves that he knows what he should be doing, but he's not doing right. it. So the the major event he gets thrown off the ship after he tells him, "Look, I know what's going on here," and uh, they throw him off. He gets swallowed by a fish, and then in chapter two, he cries out to God from the belly of the fish. And I would love it if we had more time to go through all of the all of the little pieces of this. Prayer, very pretty. Uh, Jonah knows his Old Testament, yeah, because a lot of this is quotes from other places in the Psalms or uh, in other places in the worship of Israel. But he cries out to God, and and is there anything in here that
1: sticks out to you in his prayer? Well, I don't know about the prayer, but let me go back just a sec. Uh, You know, the idea of all the you know catastrophes happening on the ship, and them trying to figure out who this is. One of the best memes I saw on the Internet recently is uh, about our current situation with COVID and, uh, you know, just uh, riots, protests. It's kind of a a lot of catastrophic things happening in our world. And this meme just said, hey, whoever is supposed to go to Nineveh, just go. (laughs) And that's kind of what it reminds me is God's uh, doing a lot to get his attention. Yes, but his prayer is is beautiful. It's almost like he comes to faith a little bit, and he says, well, here I am. And it it follows the flow a little bit. I'll I'll kick this back to you, but to me, it follows the flow of the Psalms a little bit, like, well, here I am in a lot of trouble, and God, I'm going to uh, confess to you what's going on. But by the end, I'll just point out verse 9, but uh, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he comes through, and this is just a great pattern. It's like acknowledging where you are, acknowledging what you did, and then you see hope at the end. You turn back to God. This is his moment where he, if you can say that Jonah turns back to God, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure he turns back wholeheartedly, but he at least obeys here. Yeah, I I think that's the predominant point. There are a lot of
0: ways to read this prayer and I don't even want to go into all of them because I, I think some of them are just so far off the beaten path. But some of the things you'll see people do with this prayer is um, interpreted as lip service from Jonah. You'll see people right. say that actually none of these petitions are genuine. He's just saying what he knows he needs to say. I don't think that fits with what God does after that when he releases him back onto the land. Nor do I think it... it, it uh, reflects very well into into the motives of a real human being who finds himself in a situation where he's convinced that he's going to die and then has the change of heart necessary to go actually preach the message he's been commanded to preach in Nineveh. Uh The other thing that people will do is they'll point out, and I think this is close to one of the really important themes of Jonah, if you really read the prayer, what is it that Jonah really wants to be doing? He wants to be in the temple is what he wants. He mentions that twice explicitly, that he really wants, he really desires to be back in the temple worshiping God. And we're going to talk about this later, but just to to pin this point in the story, Jonah is convinced that him being a prophet can be fully completed by being in Jerusalem in the temple of God. Right. And what God is showing him is, you actually cannot do the job that I've given you if you don't get out and go to the people that I want to speak to. Right. We do see a lot of prophets in the Bible that speak to the people of Israel. You think of Elijah. His 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 uh, ministry was predominantly to the kingdom of Israel. Uh-huh. Or you think of the prophets that, that are in Judah. But Jonah's vocation is a call to the nations. And... Part of the struggle in Jonah's own heart is he would rather be at church, basically. Right. He'd rather be in the right. temple. I mean, you can modernize this pretty easily. Then he would be out doing the ministry that God's given him to do. Uh-huh. That That's something that I think will be really applicable as we talk about that later in the story. So Jonah is praying to God. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And God says, yes, actually it does. Speaks to the fish. The, the fish vomits him up on the land, and uh, God says again, okay, go to Nineveh and call out against it the message that I tell you. So this time Jonah arises and he goes there according to the word of the Lord and he walks through the city and uh, he gives a very short sermon, which is, yeah. which is interesting. <laughs> this couldn't have taken that long uh, in sermon prep. There's no good illustrations. There's no, no good intro. He just says, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. But, the since salvation does belong to the, the Lord, Lord right. he uses that sermon to convert the people of Nineveh, and they they actually believe in God, and they call out, and, and the king declares that there should be a fast, and they're in sackcloth and mourning, and this really makes Jonah mad. Right. And like I said, sometimes we end the story thinking that this has a happy ending. The people of Jonah doesn't go at first, but then he does go, and
1: he gets to Nineveh, and they convert, and the whole thing ends happily ever after. Well, you know, kind of tying in where you're going with this, uh, because the, this is where the story is going, is I want you to, at the same time, hold in your head the, the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son. That story is actually, as Tim Keller wrote a book about this, and it's, he's exactly right, that is told to Jews, and that story is about the older brother. And I mm-hmm. just want to recap it. So, prodigal son comes home, father runs out, says, oh, you were dead. Now you're alive. Come in. We're going to have a feast. Older brother comes home and says, I can't believe he took all the money, etc. I can't believe you're letting him come back in. He said, but he repented. He was dead and now he's alive. We have to celebrate. And so an event that that calls for celebration, the older brother, who represents the Jews in Jesus' story, they're unhappy. now, back to Jonah mm-hmm.
0: yeah the thing about Jonah is he he fundamentally does not want the people of Nineveh to be saved right. that's that's the real that's the reaction that he has in chapter four is he's he's not just mad that he had to go there he points out in chapter 4 verse 2 he says to God oh Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country that that is why <laughs> yeah. I made haste to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster.
1: He's like, I knew that if you sent me here, these people were going to repent. Do you think this is the only place in the Bible where saying to God, you are a merciful God, is a reproach? Yeah. Yeah, Jonah, this is what's so interesting. He knows God's character.
0: He just doesn't like it in this moment. Right. And he really wants God to have done something different than what he did. And this is where we start to get the really important application of the book of Jonah. Is until you're willing to read Jonah's anger and his hesitance and his groaning before God and start to think about how you've seen those things in your own life, you don't really get all there is to get in the book of Jonah. And Jonah is a stubborn guy. So it's not just one round that he goes with God in his anger. He storms out of the city. He sits down on the uh, plain out there uh, on a little hill, and he decides that he's going to watch and wait and see if maybe God will change his mind and destroy the place. And if that's the and if that's the case, he wants a front row seat for this. Yeah. So what Jonah really wanted the the week that he paid attention in school was the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. what he really wanted. Right. And from from what we can tell through history and through what the Bible says later in the book of Nahum, Nineveh made Sodom and Gomorrah look like, oh, they, I mean, a Sunday school class. They, they, it, yes. it was way worse. And so Jonah's thinking, maybe God will relent and maybe he will destroy this place. And if so, I want to see it. And in the meantime, God has a little work to do with Jonah. Mm-hmm. So... What you see is God, in verse 6 of chapter 4, appoints a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade his head. And Jonah is so happy at this point that he's got this shade. And uh, then God appoints a worm. And the worm comes in and chews through the bottom of the plant. It withers. And Jonah is hot again, and he is mad about it. So mad that he would like to die, he tells God. But God said to Jonah, Are you angry about this plant? And Jonah says again, yes, I am angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Yeah. And that's the way the book ends. So I, I want to, before we talk about that ending, I want to I want to try to make a little bit of sense of, what the story of Jonah is saying to the Jewish people, right, and what it's saying to us now as Christians through the prophet himself. One of the big themes of the Old Testament that is really important to understand, if, if you want to understand what Jesus and Paul are saying in the New Testament, is the role of Israel from the very beginning, the reason that they were chosen by God in Genesis... If you look at the promises in Genesis 12 and 15 that God makes with Abraham, Mm -hmm. the Israelites were chosen to be a blessing to the world. They were going to be the nation through which God blessed the world. But over time, what happens is the Jews begin to think that they are the chosen nation of God so that God will bless them and that God will use the nations of the world to bless the Jews. Now, God does bless the Jews in a lot of ways, but all of that is meant to be an outward focus. It turns into an inward focus, and that's one of the things that the prophets point out, and that's definitely one of the things that Jesus points out when he confronts the Pharisees and the religious teachers and rulers in the first century in Jerusalem. Right. So, reading this story, we realize... Jonah has completely misconceived of what God's plan is for the world. Jonah conceives of him blessing the Jews because they are righteous and terminating the Ninevites because they are evil. But God is actually calling Jonah to do the exact same thing that he promised that the Jews would do in the very beginning. In fact, the same thing that he commanded Adam and Eve to do in the garden, which was to be fruitful and multiply and cultivate the earth, that's exactly what the Jews have been called to do. Right. So it shouldn't be a shock that God calls Jonah to go preach repentance to the nation. Right, But it is a shock. And that in itself is the major indictment of the book of Jonah. And that's a pretty easily translatable message for Christians
1: today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it goes to the idea of being chosen. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, so the time of Moses, about 1400 B.C., You know, in the law where uh, God says explicitly, you're a nation of priests, and you'll be a light to the nations. You know, you'll take my light, my truth, to the nations. He says in Deuteronomy 7, I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous or because of what you did. I chose you because I loved you. And the idea is we, we have no merit. By the time of Jonah, they felt like the law had set them apart and that they were morally superior, which is true they were morally superior to the Assyrians and consequently their choice rested on something in them and they have forgotten that they were chosen for a purpose and I think it's easy for us to think that too if we aren't careful is that we are chosen by God uh, because of our faith and the lifestyle we live and we don't think that actually we were chosen for a purpose and we should be about that purpose in the world. And you can't accomplish that in the temple, in Jonah's case, or sitting in the church constantly. We're called to worship, of course. But that we can't fulfill that entirely Mm -hmm. within the walls of the church.
0: Yeah, it's the difference between believing that you are a Christian so that God will bless you and believing that you are a Christian so that God will use you to bless other people. Right. So those things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. The problem is when you only believe one of those things. Whereas... In the story of Jonah, he believes that if he just continues to worship in the temple with God and to uh, focus on his own people, that he's fulfilling God's will. But, but God's saying, no, actually, my will for you is to go to Nineveh, no matter what that means. Even if that means he suffers, even if that means he's rejected, even if that means that he's put to death, maybe. I mean, that, that's that had to be a legitimate concern, going to Nineveh as a Jew. Right, and in the same way for Christians, it, it our calling is very similar. In the New Testament, it's clear you have been called by God. You've become a Christian because God loves you, and restoring that relationship with Him is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. And it may be that what He calls you to do after that is to suffer. Right, and our calling is similar to Jonah's in the sense that we gravitate toward complacency or the enjoyment of our own salvation. And sometimes we forget that we have been called for something. Like you said, we've been called for a
1: purpose, for a mission, for good works that God has created beforehand that we might walk in them. You know, uh, another way to say the same thing, I think, is that if you look at the book of Jonah, the message he was given was for unbelievers. But the book of Jonah is for the Jews, Mm -hmm. to convict them of their purpose. If you look at the New Testament, you look at the gospel. The gospel is a message from God for unbelievers. The New Testament, I would argue, that story is for the believers. This is what we do. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are a lot of parallels there between the book of Jonah. The message is addressed to unbelievers, but the story itself is actually a model for the believers. Sure. The ending of the book of Jonah is really interesting. It is, uh, it's, it's
0: uncanny in the Old Testament because it ends with a question, and there's only one other book that ends with a question. But it's even weirder because you get this bizarre ending about animals. So what <laughs> what is going on here with the animals? And I want to point out that if you read if you read the book of Jonah carefully. There's a really interesting storyline that runs through the way God and nature interact with each other in this story and the way that nature and Jonah interact in this story. So, for example, God speaks to Jonah in the beginning and sends him, and then after that, God basically controls the story through nature. So he hurls, he throws a uh, wind upon the sea. The, The Hebrew word there, um, means to toss, like a baseball. Like God is up in heaven, this, this is the image of it, that God is up in heaven and he just hurls a storm down on the water to um, to encapsulate the boat. Then he speaks to the whale later. He appoints a worm. He He yes. has a specific worm picked out that he's made for this uh-huh. very purpose. And then all of a sudden at the end, he says... You don't care about the people of Nineveh. And have you thought about the cattle? Right.
1: What a strange ending. What do you make of this? Well, I'm going to give you an opinion, and this is all it is. This is my opinion. I can't support this from the text. But the way I read it just in the tone is, think about what's going on here. You've got Jonah doesn't want to do what God told him to do. He ends up doing it. Now he's mad because it worked out. And then he sits down to see if God will repent. That's interesting role reversal, isn't it? If God will repent and destroy Mm -hmm. them. And so it's really hot. So he gets the plant and he's like, oh, that's nice. And then he loses the plant and he gets mad again. And God says, you're you're really upset, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. And he said, I don't understand. Answer me this. How can you be upset when you didn't do anything uh, for this plant? He didn't make it come. He didn't make it go. He said, and so put yourself in my shoes. Shouldn't I have pity on these 120,000 people? And here's the interesting thing is I think God is saying, I know you don't have any pity on these 120,000 people. I think he's convicting him. Mm -hmm. And he says, and you know what? There's a lot of cattle. If you don't have pity on the people, maybe you'll have pity on the cattle. And to me, that's like, ooh, that's like Peter being asked the third time, do you love me? It's like well, Jonah, maybe for the sake of the cattle at least. I, I, I'm not saying God's being tacky, but I'm saying he's really hammering home the point mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe you care about the cattle at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an opinion. What do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting
0: way to end the the book here. I think one of the things that you see earlier is that it, it the text says that it takes three days for Jonah to go throughout the city. Well, one of the things that, that commentators will sometimes point out is it doesn't take you three days to walk from one side of Nineveh to the other. right? And the easy comeback is it took Jonah three days to walk from one side to the other. (laughs) I mean, not just because he was moping, but because he spent some time in the city. He walked around the city. He saw everything. He was well acquainted with life in Nineveh after three days, and then he delivers his message. And I think one of the things that God is doing in this question is reminding him of the the real life that he has now seen right. in Nineveh. I mean, he uses a phrase here in this question, 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. That is not probably literally true. Right. What he's saying is these people are so confused. They don't know me. They don't know what is right. Their entire world is upside down. And having gone through the city for three days jonah knows that to be true right so i read this question to say you don't you, you care about the most particular things in your own life the plant that yeah. that rose up and then you got mad when it went down but you have seen the lives of the ninevites you should have compassion that means their right. moral bankruptcy, their livelihoods, their livestock, the whole fabric of life in it. These are real people. And they have cattle. You know that they're taking <laughs> care of. Don't you care about all of
1: this? I think it's kind of a holistic emphasis on the question. Well, I think one thing that uh, argues in favor of that is you've got God saying here, look, these people are lost. Are they evil? And Jonah says they're evil, and God says, yeah, they're evil. But you know what? They're also lost. And if you think about Jesus, once again, he didn't argue that the people that he was preaching to were saints. He didn't say they're, you know, he didn't say they're not evil. They were evil. They were sinners. But he said, but I prefer to think of them as lost. And I think you do see that heart that God has for people who, while they are indeed evil, they are also lost children. Mm -hmm. So why do you think the book ends with a question? Well, I've always thought that just like Philemon, it doesn't end with a question, but it ends with uncertainty. And what I really like about it is, is I think this is just brilliant. Because you can't put a nice little bow on this story and say, and then Jonah said, you're right, God, I'm sorry, and they all lived happily ever after. Instead, he ends this with uncertainty, and the tension never resolves, and the question throws the tension on you and me. And it basically says, what would I do in that situation? And I just think it's a brilliant way to throw the, the question to... Well, think about it. We're sitting here 2,700 years later, asking ourselves, well, do we have compassion on mm-hmm. the people that we see in our world? Are we willing to go out there and reach them? So that's why I think it doesn't resolve at the end. Yeah, it becomes kind of a choose-your-own-adventure book yeah. in the in the
0: Bible. Should I not pity Nineveh? That's where it ends. Yeah. And so the reader has to answer, should God pity Nineveh? And the question is still as resonant now as it was then when we put ourselves in the situation of Jonah If you're honest enough with yourself, no Sunday school answers here. If you're honest enough with yourself, who are the people that, you know what, you actually just don't want God to really save them. Right. You especially don't want to be the one that God uses to go and save. If somebody else does it, great, but I don't want to be involved in that. Who are the Ninevites in your own life? And the question that you have to answer then is, should God not have pity on those people?
1: Right. It's a little reminiscent to me, again, making all these connections with the New Testament. Jonah is a very, very uh, prescient book in the sense that its themes uh, find their their realization in the gospel. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant. Uh, so if you haven't heard it or heard it called that, it's, a, you know, one servant has a huge debt, can't possibly repay it. The master says, I've forgiven your debt. You don't have to repay it. Well, he's thrilled. He turns around, he walks out, he sees somebody that owes him just a little bit of money. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't pay you, but I'll do my best. Well, he chokes him and sends him off to prison. And the master finds out and said, I forgave you so much. How could you not forgive this little bit? And it it seems that way here too, is that Jonah or Terry, I've forgiven you a great deal and you are a child of God. How could I not, how could you begrudge someone else? Mm -hmm. You know, I hear that echo of, who is it in my life that I really don't care if God has pity on them or not, and I really don't care if they hear the gospel or not, Mm -hmm. and am I not that servant? Mm -hmm. That's a great
0: connection. I want to end on uh, another connection, which is Jesus' words that bring up the story of Jonah. He brings up the sign of Jonah. And what do you think the sign of Jonah is? What do you think the connection is to Jesus' message and his ministry?
1: Well, on the surface, uh, and I think this is true, is basically, if you think about what happened to Jonah, is, and I won't go any deeper than this, here's a guy who is in the belly of a whale, and he spit out after three days. He is, he's preserved. He was dead, and he came back to life. And I don't mean he was dead physically, but I mean, if you were there... And you saw the whale swallow Jonah, you'd say, well, that's the end of Jonah. Mm -hmm. And then three days later, he spits up on the shore. You go, whoa, never saw that coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, God did something unbelievable here. I mean, and it literally is unbelievable to some people. And I think what Jesus is saying, if you want to sign, once I'm dead, you'll see me alive in three days. So on a very surface level, I think there are deeper things here. But I think at the very least, that's what it's saying. Yeah think? I think it's a
0: sign of resurrection. I think yeah. in the immediate context when Jesus is talking, he's saying, "I'll give you the sign of I will give you no sign but the sign of Jonah, right. which is a resurrection. But I think it carries with it all the message of the story of Jonah in the resurrection. So the fact that when Jonah is in the belly of the fish, the message that you leave the belly of the fish with is, salvation belongs to the Lord. That is the message of the resurrection. right that salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, two, I think that that carries through the message of of, of Jonah from a bigger standpoint, which is Jonah went to a wicked and evil group of people to preach repentance that they did not deserve. And um, anybody who heard the message was saved. And that's really the message of Jesus. And Jesus doesn't have the contempt for us that Jonah had for the Ninevites. He was an obedient prophet of the Lord. But the odds were just as stacked against us as they were against Nineveh. Right. It is a total shocker if you read the story and you're an Israelite that Nineveh repented. And yes. that's the same thing that's true with us. Is The resurrection happens, the message of the gospel goes out, and boy, it is shocking. The sign of Jonah is after the resurrection, it is amazing and shocking and wonderful that people like the citizens of Nineveh